from the Heidelberg Catechism. We read together Lord's Day 41. What does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we body and soul are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the seventh commandment, God commands, you shall not commit adultery. If I were to ask you what this means, you'd probably tell me that God forbids us to have sexual relations with another man's wife. And that's true. Yet the teaching of the seventh commandment goes much further than this. We come to a better understanding of it when we examine what the word adultery means. The word adultery means to mix what does not belong together. Scientists use this term to refer to a substance that has been polluted. They say it's been debased. It's been made impure. It's the same in our sexual relations. We commit adultery when we mix what does not belong together. God forbids having sex with anyone other than your husband or wife. In Lord's Day 41, the Catechism teaches us about the Seventh Commandment. It says that all unchastity is cursed by God. And again, it's important to define the terms that we use. Unchastity is the wrong use of the gift of sexuality. The word that the Bible uses for unchastity in Greek is porneia. It's a Greek root for the English word pornography. Porneia involves more than just adultery. It refers to any sexual acts forbidden by God. They include premarital sex, incest, homosexuality, and sexual relations with animals. All these things are perverse in God's sight. Instead of unchastity, God calls us to live chaste and disciplined lives. So why has the Lord called us to live holy lives before him? There's two main reasons that we could give. The first has to do with who God is. Our God is a faithful God. He keeps his covenant. He lives up to his promises. He loves his people even in times when they sin and stray. God calls us to be faithful so that we might image him. We're called to be faithful in keeping his commandments. We're called to be faithful in living up to the promises that we make when we get married. By being faithful, we image God 
and we give glory to his name. There's also a second motivation for living a holy life before God. It's because our Lord Jesus Christ has redeemed us. He has delivered us from the bondage of sin. He's made us into his temples. Christ dwells in us with his Holy Spirit. As temples of God, we are to live in holiness. Not only does the Spirit's presence make us holy, he also helps us to live holy lives by renewing us. And thus is out of thankfulness to God for his grace and spirit that we are to live holy and chaste lives before him. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. In the seventh commandment, the Lord teaches us to live chaste and holy lives before him. We'll consider our unnatural, our natural unholiness, our redemption by Christ, and our holiness by the power of the Spirit. The Lord has made us into relational beings. He created us to live in communion with him and with each other. In paradise, Adam and Eve lived together in perfect harmony with God and one another. Then we sinned against God. We rebelled against his command. We plunged ourselves in this whole world into sin and destruction. One of the areas where this really comes through is in relationships. Adam and Eve hid from God. They were scared of him. Their communion with God was broken. Their communion with one another was also destroyed. Adam blamed Eve for the fall. The perfect harmony of life was destroyed. We know that God in his grace came into the garden and gave promises of life. In his boundless mercy, he promised to be Adam and Eve's God. He opened the way for them to have life with him again. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent and that thus his people would have life. We know of the coming of Jesus Christ. He offered up his life on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Through him, we are restored to communion with the Father. Now, within the heart of every human being, there is a longing for God. There is a searching for someone to fill the natural emptiness of our hearts. People express this in their search for the meaning of life. They try to satisfy the hunger of their hearts, to quench the thirst of their souls. Yet it's only in Jesus Christ that we can find true satisfaction in life. He's the only one who can satisfy our hunger with the bread of life, who can quench our thirst with his living waters. Jesus Christ is our bridegroom, he loves us with an everlasting love. He invites us to come to him to find joy and happiness in a living bond of love with him. The call of the gospel is to find our life in Christ and thus to experience the true satisfaction that only he can give. And yet we live in a sinful and broken world 
in a world where there's many who do not know God and the riches of his grace, in a world where at times it seems like God is also far removed from us. It's especially when we face loneliness and struggles in life that we're vulnerable. When life does not go as planned, then our hearts begin to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Remember, we are relational beings. We are created to live in close harmony with God and our fellow man. If we feel like God is not fulfilling our needs and desires, we begin to look for alternatives. Our hearts look for connection with another person. We desire intimate communion with another, someone to be with, someone to share our life with. Now, obviously, it's possible to have a good relationship with God and still desire communion with another person. There's nothing wrong with that kind of desire. It has been instilled in us by God. It is always a danger that we will look for another person to fill our inmost needs. Beloved, that's something another person can never do. Only Christ can fill the deepest longings of our souls by allowing us to drink of his grace and love. In the broken and sinful world in which we live, there is danger that our appetites are cheapened, that we eat of bread that does not truly satisfy. All around us in this world, we hear of people searching for love. Today, there's many agencies that specialize in matching lonely hearts together. The prevalence of these kinds of websites testifies to the many hungry hearts around us. So many empty hearts searching for love, longing for another to fill the emptiness within them. It's not just out there in the world. The people are searching for love. The same also happens in the church. And in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with a heart looking for love. But there is a danger that we look in the wrong places. The danger is that we look for other people to fulfill a desire that only God can truly satisfy. What makes this danger so great today is that many confuse love and sex. When the world speaks about love, most often it means sex. But love involves so much more than sex. True love involves friendship. It involves emotional intimacy, where you share your heart with your partner. Love involves a commitment to be there for the other person in good times and bad. In marriage, God allows husband and wife to express their love and sexual intimacy as well. The Bible speaks about how husband and wife become one flesh. It includes emotional, spiritual, and sexual unity. The Bible talks positively about the sexual unity of husband and wife. In Proverbs 5, husbands and wives are encouraged to share in pleasure together. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. 
be intoxicated always in her love. Indeed, beloved, we may thank God for our sexuality and for the enjoyment he gives in it. Within marriage, it is a gift from out of God's hand. And the problem is that because of the strong desires within us, many abuse God's wonderful gifts. People take what's not rightfully theirs. In our world today, many engage in casual sex with whoever is willing to satisfy their desires. It doesn't even... It doesn't even require an emotional connection or a love relationship anymore. People in the world talk about being friends with benefits. Friends who are not even dating. We use each other for sexual gratification. The world's view is that everything is permitted between two consenting adults. Many in our society live by the slogan, it feels good, do it. Or, it's okay as long as no one gets hurt. Beloved, what we need to understand is that by nature, we are as unholy as the worst sinners in this world. Also within the church, there's many sexual sins that are committed. Lonely hearts get caught up in all manner of sexual sin. Premarital sex and adultery happen. At times we're faced with homosexuality, with incest, even with sexual abuse. Don't think you could never be tempted by sexual sin. Pride comes before the fall. See, beloved, by nature, we're totally depraved. But for the grace of God, any of us are susceptible to any kind of sin. And beloved, Satan has many tools to draw us into sexual sin. It's not like you wake up one morning and decide you're going to commit such and such a sexual sin. Sin doesn't just happen. First, our hearts and minds are influenced. If you're watching TV regularly, you'll become accustomed to infidelity Unfaithfulness is presented as a normal part of life. The web has allowed pornography to enter our homes in a stealthy manner to take captive the hearts of many. Pornography is a destructive influence. It infiltrates our thinking and it affects how we relate to others. Those within the church who view porn know that what they're doing is wrong. Yet because they get enslaved, stopping is difficult. This is all kinds of effects. It undermines our personal relationship with God. Our relationship with God is affected by a cycle that involves falling into sin, feeling bad, being eaten up inside with shame and guilt, confessing our sins, resolving to fight and do better next time. And then falling into sin again. Because pornography is shameful, many find it tremendously difficult to open up and confess their sins to others and to get help. Results in hating yourself as a person and feeling powerless. 
times in even doubting our salvation. Pornography also has a very negative influence on your relationship with others. Those who abuse pornography generally develop a wrong view of other people. They become objects to be used to satisfy sexual desires. Makes it much more difficult to bond emotionally with the real people in our lives. And thus not only our spiritual life with God is affected, also our ability to form intimate relationships is compromised. Beloved, all around us, our Western culture is becoming increasingly sexualized. There are so many temptations for us to fall into sexual sin, at times in an impersonal way, through forms of pornography. But at times the temptations are also strong to fall into more personal sexual sins. Once your mindset is sexually oriented, there's so many opportunities to fall into sin. Perhaps with someone you admire at work, or with someone you've met at the gym, or with a friend you've been close to for years. We think that fulfilling our sexual desires will still the longing of our hearts. That is an answer to the loneliness we experience day by day. Sin often provides short-term pleasure. That's why sexual sin is so addictive. Yet especially sexual sins affect us in a deeply personal way. They cause deep feelings of shame and guilt. When we engage in sexual sin, we give away part of ourselves. And each time we do it, we feel emptier and emptier. Sexual sins rob us of true joy and of happiness in our lives. Do you understand, beloved, how sexual sins lead to lonely hearts? And how as that loneliness grows, we try even harder to fill it? And how that leads to even more shame and sorrow? And how in the end, we get caught up in despair? In this, we see the truth of God's word being fulfilled. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Sin has consequences. Sexual sins affect us deeply. It's only by God's grace and spirit that we can be set free. We deal with this in our second point, and we'll consider our redemption in Christ. Beloved, in God's eyes, all sins are terrible. They are rebellion against him. They're a breaking of the covenant. We as human beings often grade sins differently We view sexual sins as being much worse than many other sins. There's a reason for this. It's because sexual sins affect us very personally. Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. He says, All other sins that a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. We sin sexually, it often touches us in a special way. 
Our conscience will accuse us that what we did was terribly wrong. At times, people are riddled with guilt or overcome with shame because of their sexual sins. Now, the good news of the gospel is that all our sins, also our sexual sins, can be forgiven. Jesus Christ came into this world to suffer and to die. He came to pay for all our sins. God poured out his wrath against our sins on Jesus, especially during the three hours of darkness on the cross. Beloved, if we repent of our sins, they're washed away through the blood of Christ. When God looks at us, he considers us not guilty. The Apostle Paul made this point beautifully in what he wrote to the Corinthian congregation in 1 Corinthians 6. Paul starts by asking a question. He asks, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul goes on to show that people living in various sexual sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul continues by saying, and that's what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthian congregation had members in it that were sexually immoral, who were guilty of fornication, of adultery, of homosexuality. Remember that as part of the worship of various gods in Corinth, people involved themselves with both male and female temple prostitutes. Yet when the gospel was preached to them, they repented of their sins. They were washed in the blood of Christ. They were renewed by the Spirit of Christ. God took them out of their sins. He gave them life in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Christ delivered them from the power of Satan. He transferred them into his glorious kingdom. The point I want to make abundantly clear this afternoon is that there is forgiveness available for all our sins. You see, beloved, we were bought at a price. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ has offered up his body and blood for the full forgiveness of all our sins, also our sexual sins. Now, beloved, this can be difficult for us to accept. Because sexual sins affect us so personally, they can cause deep shame and guilt. Even after we've repented from such sins, we can still feel terrible about the sins that we've committed. At times, it seems like shame and guilt have a hold on us. We feel unworthy of God's grace. We have a terribly negative self-image. We continue to view ourselves as dirty, as defiled, 
as contemptible beings. But beloved, if that's the case, then we're not really understanding the gospel. Maybe we understand it intellectually, but not on a heart level. The good news of salvation is that Jesus Christ paid the price to redeem us, body and soul, from all our sins. You see, when God looks at us, God looks at us through special lenses. God views us through the blood and spirit of Christ. God knows that we've committed so many terrible sins. But he doesn't look at us as unworthy sinners. God sees us as his redeemed and his renewed children. The Catechism summarizes the doctrine of justification so beautifully in Lord's Day 23. It teaches us that in Christ we are righteous before God. We share in that righteousness of Christ by faith, by believing that Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now listen carefully to what follows. Our Catechism says... Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, also the seventh commandment, yet God, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience that Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Beloved, if we have repented of our sins, God grants us the righteousness, the holiness of Christ. God isn't looking at us negatively. In God's eyes, we are pure, we are holy. Not in ourselves, but in Christ. In Christ, God looks at us in love. As a father looks on his children with love. God considers us his sons and daughters. Those who have committed sexual sins often need to have their image rebuilt. They need a new perspective on who they are. They need to learn to see themselves as being in the image of God. Not as dirty, defiled, unworthy people. But as God's precious children. whom he loves with a deep and abiding love. This brings us to our final point. And if we consider our holiness by the power of the Spirit. As Christians, we are holy. Not because of how good we are, but by the blood and the Spirit of Christ. To be holy means to be set apart, dedicated to the service of God. God calls us into this holiness. Peter teaches us in 1 Peter, 5, in 1 Peter 1 15, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Out of thankfulness to God 
For his grace in Christ, we're called to live chaste and holy lives before him. Paul emphasizes this in what he writes in 1 Corinthians 6. He commands us, flee from sexual immorality. He gives a reason why sexual immorality is so wrong. The reason is that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in us, whom we have received from God. Paul says you're not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, beloved, we can't do this in our own strength. By nature, we're weak. Repeatedly, we have a tendency to fall into the same kind of sins. Unless we live by grace, that will be the pattern of our lives. Those who struggle with pornography know this. After repenting of the latest time when they fall into sin, they make all kinds of resolutions. I will not go on the computer when no one else is around. I promise I'll install software that prevents access from porn sites. They make rules that at the time they fully intend to keep. And yet, beloved, as Reformed Christians, we should know the law never saves us. Making rules doesn't help us to deal decisively with sin. Yes, it's beneficial to put measures in place to prevent temptation. But rules never help you overcome sin. In many cases, rules are just made to be broken. And all they do is increase our shame and our guilt. So what's the way forward? How do we deal with pervasive sexual sin? How do we get out of situations when we're enslaved by the power of the evil one? Where Satan is master over a certain aspect of our lives. We need to understand the basic issue. Our deep need for God. Our hunger and thirsting for someone to fill the emptiness inside. We need to turn to Christ as a lover of our souls to seek our hope and our salvation in him. That means building a strong personal relationship with God, being devoted to coming to know him, confessing openly our sins and struggles before him, seeking his grace to forgive us, seeking his spirit to help us in our spiritual battles. And beloved, we know that the spirit works through the word. And so we need to make the reading of scripture and daily devotions part of our normal routine. Give the spirit opportunity to work in your heart. Start and end every day with God. The way to overcome sexual sin is also to build deep relationships with those around us. James tells us in chapter 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. If we truly want to overcome sin, we need to come clean about it. Not just to God, but also to others around us. You see, sin thrives in the darkness. 
But when it's exposed, when the light of Christ shines on it, we're much better equipped to deal with it. For then we have others close by to help us, to hold us accountable. Deep personal relationships help tremendously in our fight against sexual sins. Beloved, let us not seek the fulfillment of our desires in all the cheap alternatives that this world offers. There's only one person who can fill the true longing of our souls, who can provide the real satisfaction that we yearn for. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the bread of life. The one who provides living waters, our food and drink, to life eternal. For all those searching for love, Jesus Christ is a true lover of our souls. He's the only one who loves us perfectly, who can meet all our needs. In his grace, God often also allows us to experience intimate communion with another person in this life. God is the one who gives husband and wife to one another, who allows them to give and receive love in a special way within the marriage relationship. It's within marriage, and only within marriage, that we may give expression to our sexual desires. God put this limitation in place to protect us, to keep us from harm and hurt. Disobeying his commands only leads to shame and to guilt and to death. God's way leads to life. When we live by his grace and spirit, we walk in freedom. May God help us to live pure and holy lives to the praise of his name. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise and sing from Psalm 63, stanzas 1 and 3.